if we really want the discoveries that we make to be translated to benefit of people, which I think is the ultimate goal, then we need to have physicians and scientists who are really working together and where there's um, an easy transition from the laboratory into the clinic. I think a lot of people recognize the importance of that, and yet there's still a sense that there's been a tendency historically for scientists and and physicians to work in separate silos and where the transition between those two worlds can be slow and inefficient. It, you know, and it certainly constrains the way we're able to deploy our resources going forward, but it's also had some startlingly positive uh, effects. Dr. Sean Morrison is the director of the Children's Medical Research Institute of Dallas, Texas. In this role, he is on the leading edge of the fight against cancer using stem cells. A few months ago, I heard him speak, and it was immediately apparent he was no ordinary presenter. Rather, he was somebody of extraordinary accomplishments, a rare ability to communicate the complex nature of his work in terms anybody can understand, and a contagious enthusiasm for the subject. He was virtually the perfect guest for this show. After a lot of work, I'm pleased to finally be able to say, coming up on this episode, dispatches from the frontiers of groundbreaking medical research with Dr. Sean Morrison. You absolutely do not want to miss it. Dr. Sean Morrison established the Children's Medical Research Institute in 2011. The Institute is a joint venture of the Children's Medical Center and the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, both in Dallas. The combination of resources he was offered to set up the Institute was one of the largest in the history of academia. Dr. Morrison received his BSc in Biology and Chemistry from Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada. He completed his graduate studies with Dr. Irv Weissman at Stanford in San Francisco and his postdoctoral studies with Professor David Anderson at Caltech in Pasadena. He was a faculty member at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor from 1999 through 2011. Since 2000, he has also been an investigator for the prestigious Howard Hughes Medical Institute. The Children's Medical Research Institute looks for breakthroughs that change scientific fields and yield new strategies for treating disease. The Institute is also a leader in tightly integrating scientific research with clinical work with actual patients. I spoke with Dr. Morrison in his office in Dallas. Dr. Morrison, welcome, and it's truly an honor to have you on the Work Not Work show. Thanks for having me. To briefly introduce our listeners to your work, in an article by Joseph Guinto of D Magazine, you concisely explained how stem cell research might lead to innovative new cancer therapies. Can you quickly walk us through that beautifully simple description? The reason why people are so excited about stem cell research is that stem cells have the capacity to repair large amount or regrow large amounts of tissue. So for example, when people give blood, all those blood cells grow back from stem cells in their bone marrow. Part of the reason that stem cells can do that is that they have the capacity to replicate themselves throughout life. 
Cancer is a disease of dysregulated stem cell self-renewal, where instead of replicating themselves in a highly regulated way, cancer cells replicate themselves in an unregulated way. And instead of growing normal tissue, they grow tumors. So in my laboratory, we study the mechanisms that stem cells use to replicate themselves and how those mechanisms go wrong in the context of cancer to cause tumors. So we hope to identify therapies that either promote those mechanisms in the context of regenerative disease or that inhibit those mechanisms in the context of cancer. For those listeners who may not be familiar with the term or may not have correct information, can you provide a simplified working definition for stem cells that we can keep in mind for the balance of our discussion today? Stem cells are the rare cells in each tissue that are able to grow or regenerate most of the other cells in the tissue. So blood-forming stem cells, for example, are the rare cells in the bone marrow that give rise to all of the cells in your blood. You also have stem cells in muscle, stem cells in skin, stem cells in other places that are responsible for maintaining those tissues throughout life. Before we get to your current work in more detail, I want to turn the clock back to some of the pivot points in your career leading up to today. Going right back to the beginning, you grew up in Nova Scotia, Canada, and given that the default occupation for every Canadian kid is NHL hockey player, what is your earliest memory of why science might actually hold more promise for you than, say, being a star center for the Montreal Canadiens? Well, I actually would have preferred to be a star center for the Montreal Canadiens, but uh, I learned early on that I didn't quite have the right genes for that. <laughs> I see. So science is a good, is a good occupation for uh, competitive people who don't have the right genes to be professional <laughs> athletes. Right. Okay, fair, fair enough. But was there, a, was there a, a, some moment in time where you said, gosh, this looks really amazing, I'm going to do this? I guess I was always interested in science and, and uh, captivated by the idea of seeing something that people had never seen before and understanding something about how human health works or how nature works uh, that people hadn't realized before and being the first person to discover those things. While still in high school in Canada, you were involved in a program, SHAD, or as it was called back then, SHAD Valley, which exposed you to university-level research at an early age. Can you briefly tell us about that program and the role it played in your early academic career? Yeah, the Shad Valley program is a summer program for high school students that excel, uh, particularly in the area of science. And they go to a campus at a Canadian university for about a month. And at that institution, they're exposed to other kids like them who are interested in science and they are exposed to more advanced things than you would have an opportunity to study in a high school classroom, as well as the interface between science and business. So the interface between science and entrepreneurship. It's really um, an exciting and visionary program that's created specifically in Canada to cater towards those kinds of students who might have interest in those areas. And for a lot of kids like me, it was the you know, first opportunity to actually live away from home for a while and meet other kids like me from across the country and then to be exposed to more advanced topics in science and to be exposed to the interface with entrepreneurship in a way that I ha hadn't been to the same extent in high school. It was exciting to, to meet other people like me and be told that it was um, okay to try to do special things and it kind of 
turned on some light bulbs with respect to the entrepreneurial aspects of science and the possibility of starting technology-intensive companies. You mentioned a couple of times in your answer the notion of entrepreneurship, which seems to have been really important to you. After high school, you attended Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia to study biology and chemistry. You also founded Endogrow Systems during this same time. Can you tell us a little more about this period and Endogrow in particular? Actually, I founded it with a friend of mine from high school, Brent Walker, who we actually founded the company during high school. This was a, a small agricultural biotech company that was, its goal was to produce a biological fertilizer to grow a kind of fungus that increases nutrient uptake in plants. And so the idea is that the, it could be used as a biological fertilizer in place of chemical fertilizer. It started as a science fair project that we did together and that won some national awards. And then we turned it into a company. You mean um, a science fair as I would understand it? A regular old high school science fair, like with the posters and the booth and all that? Yeah, you know, a high school science fair and then, well, actually a regional science fair in Nova Scotia that won an award that allowed us to go to the national science fair. And so it won both regional and national awards. Uh, but we thought we had ideas for improving the way that this fungus could be grown and so decided to turn it into a company. And it was kind of funny because we'd be sitting in our high school classes thinking about, you know, what we were going to call this company and what we were going to do because it was already happening when we were finishing high school. Uh, our first shareholders agreement, we were legally, we were 17 years old when we signed our first shareholders agreement and we were legally too young to be bound by it. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. So entrepreneurship is something that came very naturally to you and at a very young age. I think so, because, you know, ultimately, I'm an academic scientist now, and I run a university research laboratory, but ultimately, the things that we learn um, can't benefit people unless they get spun out into the private sector that can make the more substantial investments to try to turn them into new therapies. I want to come back to that in a moment. But this period ultimately involved a significant reorientation of your career path to medical research. Why was that exactly? You know, Endigrow ultimately failed. We did a number of good things at Endigrow, but there was a stock market crash in, in fact, we had a four-year field trial that was funded by Agriculture Canada that had a number of positive results from our, the product that we were developing. But there was a stock market crash in October of 1987 where all money for agricultural biotech dried up before we were able to go do the next round of financing. Uh, one of the things I learned as a result of that experience was that I wanted to work in a very competitive field where the importance of the work was viscerally evident to everybody. And when I was trying to raise the next round of financing for Endigrow, it was clear that people didn't feel the same sense of urgency about biological fertilizers as they did about treating cancer. And so that's the reason that I made the transition into medical research so the fact that it has greater and more visible impact to society. Well, and it's not that agricultural biotech doesn't have an impact. It has an enormous impact. It just doesn't have the same visceral impact as, as medical research does for people. Because, you know, if you talk to people about curing cancer, they a little bit more quickly recognize the value of that as compared to increasing soybean yields. Right. Uh, and so, you know, the reality is that both are really important, but that 
I realized that that there was an advantage in working in fields that were very competitive and that uh, there were uh, you know a lot of funding for and uh, a lot of people that recognized the value of it. Even though you eventually decided to shutter Indigo, did that experience help you later in life when you set up the Children's Medical Research Institute? Uh, it was incredibly valuable. It was an incredible learning experience. You know, I had run my own laboratory as an undergraduate student and so learned an enormous amount about doing science and learned a lot about business trying to, you know, run this little biotech company and to keep it afloat financially through all the difficulties. So it was an incredible learning experience. And I left uh, Dalhousie and went on and did a PhD at Stanford University. Arriving there as a graduate student, the challenges of graduate school seemed small relative to the challenges of, of running my own company. Now, you were accepted as a graduate student at Stanford. In addition to Stanford, where else <laughs> did you apply? And what reaction did you receive from those other institutions? And ultimately, why did you choose Stanford? I applied to a limited number of institutions, and I was accepted and offered funding by Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford. I was accepted, but I don't think I was offered funding by the University of Toronto, and I was waitlisted at McGill. By waitlisted, you mean they felt they had other more qualified candidates than you. Right. And yet Stanford and Harvard were fighting to have you as one of their students. Um, yeah. I mean, I was applying to somewhat different programs at the different institutions, and so it's not entirely apples to apples. But yeah, in the end, I decided... As a result of that, all of that, I was basically choosing between Harvard and Stanford and elected to go to Stanford. Before we leave that subject entirely, what might other countries around the world learn from your experience as they try and attract top academic talent to their institutions? Well, you know, I, my experiences are my experiences, and I don't know how generalizable they are, and so I think we have to be careful not to suggest that there's anything general in the Canadian experience from my experience, you know, what's happened to me. But, you know, it, it, it is true that at every stage of my career, I've been recruited much more, at, at every stage of my life after finishing undergraduate work, I've been recruited, recruited much more aggressively by American institutions as, com as compared to Canadian institutions. Now, leading a research institute myself, I know that in order to get the best people, we have to work very, very hard to recruit those people competing against other good institutions in New York and Boston and San Francisco. Um, there are certainly outstanding people in Canada. You know, University of Toronto is a world-class institution. But I, I do get the impression that sometimes other institutions in Canada are not maybe competing as hard for the individuals that we compete for. Is that an issue of money? Well, money is part of it. Uh, you know, we're, we're competing with other institutions. We're trying to tilt the playing field by offering people more money. But it's not the only thing. Um, you know, we also have to put enormous effort into the recruitments. And, you know, when, when I was being recruited by Stanford and Harvard, they were both paying for me to fly to those institutions and to meet with faculty and... Uh, I, I don't think that ever happened with, uh, with University of Toronto and with McGill. So again, I know, I I'm not trying to suggest that my experience is necessarily generalizable, but certainly it is the case that when you're trying to recruit people for the people that a lot of people want, you have to work very hard for them. 
Was there a clear connection between your undergraduate work at Dalhousie, including Indigo, and the studies you undertook at Stanford, or was it a right-angle departure into a new field? It was a bit of a right-angle departure because, you know, the stuff I was doing, uh, I did, my undergraduate degree was basically in biochemistry at Dalhousie. I, uh, the research was plant biotech or plant pathology. I decided I wanted to make the transition into medical research. And I knew from the experience at Endergro that I wanted to work in an area that people thought was really important and that was central to a lot of things. Uh, you know, a, a launching off point from which important questions could be explored. And so uh, when I went to Stanford, I decided, decided to start working in stem cell research. And in some ways, it really was the early days of stem cell research. They didn't have the place in public consciousness that they do now. In some ways, we were laying the foundation for a lot of the work that came after. And I think it turned out to be a good choice to work in that area. What do you feel were your significant research accomplishments at Stanford? Uh, at Stanford, I worked on blood-forming stem cells. Um, so as I said before, these are the cells in the bone marrow that make new blood cells. And you have to make new blood cells every day to maintain blood cell counts. So you're making new red blood cells that carry oxygen around your body, making new platelets that are responsible for the clots when you have a cut, and new immune system cells. And if you lost your stem cells today, um, you would die of being immunocompromised and being anemic uh, within weeks. So the stem cells persist throughout life in your bone marrow, and they have to replicate themselves. Uh, I worked as a graduate student in Irv Weissman's lab at Stanford, and he is is an internationally recognized pioneer in the area of stem cell research because his laboratory was the first to purify blood-forming stem cells, and that made it possible to really study their properties. And so I arrived in his lab soon after that had been accomplished, and so there was a lot of biology to do to understand what these cells were and how they were regulated and how we could study them and what the implications were for disease. And so I had the opportunity to be involved in the early stages of that and did a lot of work that expanded the ability to purify the cells and uh, increased the ability to distinguish them from other kinds of uh, progenitors in the blood-forming system. After five years, you then moved down the coast a little to Caltech for your postdoctoral studies. What was it that attracted you to that program, and how were you able to build on your graduate work? The postdoctoral research period is an opportunity to gain a little bit of additional training before you go off and start your own laboratory. And it's good to work on a different problem, but you want to identify a problem that you have some insights into and have the potential to make an important discovery. What I did was I uh, decided to start working on nervous system stem cells. At that point, it was clear from the work of others that nervous system stem cells also existed, but people weren't as far along as in the blood-forming system and understanding what those cells were and how they worked. And so I decided to take the approaches that I had used at Stanford and apply them to the nervous system to see if we could purify nervous system stem cells and to understand how they work. I, I worked in uh, David Anderson's laboratory at Caltech. And again, he's a world-renowned, truly outstanding scientist. And David and I were able to purify stem cells that gave rise to the peripheral nervous system and understand some new things about how the peripheral nervous system develops. During your first year at Caltech, I understand you eventually concluded you were working on the wrong thing. Yeah. And I believe you were quoted as saying at the time, you felt you had no future in science. Seriously? 
Can you tell us about that episode? Yeah, I don't think there's too many times that people screw up professionally as deeply as I screwed up, <laughs> where I, I spent an entire work, a year working really hard on trying to identify a stem cell population in the brain and proved at the end of the year that I had been looking at the wrong cells completely and that everything I had done was a total artifact. And at the end of the year, I had zero to show for an entire year's work. And it was at that point when I thought that, you know, although things had gone well at Stanford, that I probably had no future in science because people were going to see from my postdoctoral work what a failure I really was. How were you able to recover from that and get back on track? Well, David said to me that, that maybe we should just switch the focus of the project away from that population in the brain that we were trying to identify to the peripheral nervous system because he thought that the approach that I was trying to take could work in the peripheral nervous system as well. And, you know, maybe just changing the focus a little bit might allow the whole thing to gain traction. And he was totally correct. And when I switched to the peripheral nervous system, it worked right away. No one had been able to purify a nervous system stem cell from a tissue before. And as I said, it worked right away in the peripheral nervous system. And so things instantly became productive. And uh, in parallel with things starting to work in the peripheral nervous system, I was approached uh, by the University of Michigan and a few other institutions about the possibility of starting a new lab at those institutions. And so, you know, at the time when they approached me, they didn't realize when they started their conversations with me, that I had been completely unproductive as a postdoc. But fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, the work started working um, so quickly that between the first interview and the second interview, I actually had something to show for the postdoctoral work. And so um, they never figured it out. What a slow start I got. <laughs> it sounds like there was a very special relationship between yourself and Professor Anderson. He obviously provided a real mentoring role because it sounds like that year could have been the end of your career. <laughs> yeah, you know, and his laboratory was an outstanding environment. He's absolutely encyclopedic in his knowledge of science and makes creative connections between things. And so it's one of the great experiences of my science career to be able to just sit and talk about science with him. Did that experience shape your later approach to the way you set up the Institute? Uh, and so certainly people say this and um, you don't really know what it means until you've experienced it, but you really do learn more through the failures than you do from the successes. And so um, I did learn a lot from my failures at Caltech. When you finished at Caltech, you chose the University of Michigan for your first faculty position. Similar to the question I asked about Stanford, what alternatives presented themselves, and how is it that you chose that particular institution, besides the great weather, of course? <laughs> Every institution has, has its advantages and disadvantages, and I had offers at a number of institutions. But uh, University of Michigan had really done a good job of putting the whole package together. Um, there's a lot of junior faculty go there and are very successful. Uh, I could actually get CBC television in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in a way that I couldn't at any of the other places. And there's more <laughs> hockey in Ann Arbor than there is anywhere else in the world. I was going to ask if that was a factor. <laughs> <laughs> From 99 through 2011, you prospered in roles of increasing responsibility at Michigan. 
What were the highlights of your work there? And in particular, how did you build on your previous work? And what foundation did it provide for your future work at UT Southwestern? The, the, there was a widespread idea in the field of stem cell biology in the late 90s that the molecular mechanisms that allow stem cells to do the remarkable things that they do might be somehow shared between tissues because in many ways, stem cells in the skin and the bone marrow and the nervous system are different in the kinds of tissues that they make, but there are many parallels in terms of how they do it. The problem was that most people at that time were trained to study one kind of stem cell. People were hematologists that could study blood-forming stem cells, or they were neurobiologists that could study nervous system stem cells. And so people would wave their hands about how there would be molecular mechanisms that would be conserved among tissues. But there were very few people that were in a position to really carefully test that idea. And because I had been trained to work on both blood-forming stem cells and nervous system stem cells, my lab was one of the first that could really go back and forth between stem cells and different tissues to directly test whether there were molecular mechanisms that were common between those stem cells. And we went on to, at the time, there was really nothing known. We knew that stem cells existed and we knew some techniques for how to study them, but we didn't know, we knew almost nothing about how they, their functions were regulated at a molecular level, you know, by genes. You know, and at the time that I said that I thought the important question was for us to understand how stem cells could replicate themselves in tissues, I wasn't persuaded that we knew how to study that question. Uh, but I thought it was a good story, and so that's what I told people that my lab at Michigan was going to do. And it did get people excited, and we got lucky that the things that we tried actually worked. And we went on to discover a series of gene products that are important to regulating stem cells in many tissues. While at Michigan, you were drawn into the politics of stem cell research, including testifying before the U.S. Congress. Is that battle behind us now, or do we need to fear some current or future political movement endangering that work? Well, I'm, I would have said two years ago that that battle was behind us, but now I worry that those battles are coming back. You know, I think it's important for people who understand the science to be willing to explain it to the public because it's really critical that science policies be based on a sound understanding of what the science actually says. Because when science policy starts being created for ideological reasons, it undermines uh, scientific competitiveness, it undermines economic development, and it undermines our ability to develop the new therapies on which people depend. After a decade or so at Michigan, there was a day when UT Southwestern called. Can you tell us about that particular moment and how your thought process evolved to eventually accepting this new position? <laughs> well, they said that they wanted to, me to come and interview uh, to create a stem cell program at UT Southwestern. And, you know, I was thinking, well, I've already got a stem cell program at the University of Michigan, so why would I go to Texas to do the same thing again? And when I got here, it turned out I was interviewing actually for three different jobs, two of which they told me about when I got here and one of which was a secret job that they didn't tell me about. <laughs> but then when I left... Oh, are we going to uh, talk about that secret job? Well, it's the job I have now. When I left, they said, we didn't tell you this when you were here, but what you were really interviewing for was this position to create a new institute at UT Southwestern. And as they started to talk to me about this new institute that was created as a joint venture between Children's Medical Center in Dallas and the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, I was just captivated by the possibility of starting a new research institute from scratch. 
because it's not very often in academia that completely new things are created. You know, usually people had talked to me about a lot of different leadership positions, you know, becoming chair of this department or that department. And it never really, you know, I'm excited about the possibility of entrepreneurship. And so the idea of starting something completely new from scratch, you know, with the involvement of one of the largest children's hospitals in the United States and one of the um, top medical schools in the world, once they raised the possibility, I couldn't stop thinking about it. This is where your early introduction to entrepreneurship with Endigro came back in spades by the sound of it. Yeah, Shad Valley had really impressed upon me the need for entrepreneurship to translate science discoveries to really benefit people. And I guess that's another idea I've been thinking about ever since Shad. You were offered two empty floors in a building on the UT Southwestern campus and a $150 million commitment over 10 years. In other words, a blank sheet of paper and significant resources with which to write on it. Can you tell us what went through your mind when the full scope of that offer began to sink in? I thought, cool. <laughs> so you're, so it, you are like the rest of us in that respect. <laughs> Some things don't change. Yeah, and then your second thought is, well, I better do something good with this money. <laughs> you know, failure's not an option here. Did you feel a sense of pressure given the magnitude of the resources you were being offered? You know, I was so focused initially on thinking about what are we going to do with these resources uh, that I didn't initially feel pressure. And then I got here and somebody in leadership said to me, you know, this is one of the biggest offers in the history of academia. <laughs> wow. I started to feel Unbelievable. pressure. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That, so I, and, and I guess it was meant as a compliment or as, you know, as affirmation, but I guess it could also have the effect of scaring the heck out of you. Uh, no, I think it was designed to scare the heck out of me. Oh, <laughs> the, the right motivation. Okay. No, that's good. <laughs> Now, in the various articles I've read as I was researching for this episode, you've described your lab as optimized for discovery and innovation. What does that mean exactly in this context, and how have you gone about achieving that? Well, one of the other formative experiences I have is that my laboratory is funded by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And Howard Hughes is one of the world's largest and most successful biomedical research organizations. They fund about 300 laboratories across the United States. And they, have, they also have an international program, which they funded a number of Canadian laboratories in the past. The ha- Howard Hughes says that they want to fund people that are consistently at the forefront of their fields, that they're looking for people that accomplish things that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And so they have something, they evaluate the impact of their investments based on something they call the deletion test. Every five years, I have to go tell them what I've done with their money over the past five years. And they have a committee, and they ask the committee when I get done, if Sean had been hit by a bus five years ago, would the field be where it is today? And if the answer is, well, except for some details, it would pretty much be where it is today, then you get fired. Wow, really? And, and, uh, it's, as and black, so, it's as black and white as that? Well, uh, I, More or less? Yeah, more or less. On one hand, it feels cold to be subject to the deletion test. And on the other hand it very succinctly encapsulates what you're really trying to accomplish when you make a large investment in something. And so I realized from the outset that, that the deletion test could also be done at the level of institutions and that if we accomplish what we wanted to accomplish with Children's Research Institute, 
then we should be able to look back in 15 years and be able to point to something that the Institute, institute accomplished that wouldn't have happened otherwise. If you think about what is it that you want to accomplish, the, the highest and most inalienable standard for accomplishment would be to cure somebody who wouldn't be cured otherwise. So our first goal in Children's Research Institute is to make important scientific discoveries that change the way people think about scientific problems and that lead to new strategies for treating disease. And so then it becomes a question, well, how, what are the fields in which you're going to do that? Well, you want to surveil the scientific landscape and look where the opportunities are, and you have to work on problems that are important problems. So we decided to focus at the interface of stem cell biology, cancer, and metabolism, partly because we think that there are opportunities at the interface of those fields, unexplored opportunities for discovery that are pregnant with opportunity for developing new therapies for disease, and partly because that would allow us to cast a wide net and recruit you know, some of the top young scientists in the country, in, in the United States, most of them, I mean, we're happy to recruit Canadians too, but as a practical matter, most of the people that apply for positions uh, come from the United States. We, we're, target, we're trying to identify the top 1% of young scientists at all levels and to recruit them here. As things stand today, can you tell us the main investigative objectives as well as the scope and scale of the Children's Medical Research Institute at UT Southwestern? Well, there's a lot of people working in the institute. My laboratory is one of six laboratories that are currently in the institute. You know, there are many different people with many different projects, but in my laboratory, we're trying to understand the mechanisms that stem cells use to replicate themselves, and by better understanding those mechanisms, come up with new approaches for regenerative disease. And we're trying to compare those mechanisms to the mechanisms that cancer cells use to replicate themselves and trying to come up with new approaches to block cancer cell replication. And so um, one example of, of our recent work in the area of regenerative medicine is that we discovered a new bone-forming growth factor. People didn't know this growth factor exists, but it's the factor that it's required to maintain adult skeleton mass. So you tend to lose bone mass as you get older. We think because this growth factor gets turned off as you get, get older. And if you knock this growth factor out in mice, they lose bone mass at an accelerated rate and they develop osteoporosis. And if we inject this growth factor into mice with osteoporosis, it systemically promotes new bone formation and to a first approximation cures their osteoporosis. And so now we're exploring whether this could actually be used. There's a, many, there's a lot of work to do, and we don't know the answer yet, but we're interested in the question of whether this new growth factor could be used clinically to, to treat osteoporosis or other bone diseases. I would like to talk more about that interface between research and clinical work, but before we leave this part of the conversation, you tell a particularly compelling story of how melanoma cells, that is skin cancer cells, replicate themselves. This included upending some of the conventional wisdom as to how cancer is treated. Can you tell that story to help listeners understand the practical work taking place in your lab? Yeah, we developed a way of taking melanoma cells from patients and growing them in mice. One of the consequences is that we are able to study the mechanisms that melanoma cells use to spread throughout the body. 
The important thing with melanoma is to detect it early and cut it off before it spreads because it's once it spreads that it can kill you. You know, there's a lot of people who are trying to kill melanoma cells, and there's been some really important recent success with agents that activate the immune system. But outside of that, you know, we really haven't been very successful at killing melanoma cells. And we thought in my laboratory, maybe we don't need to kill them. Maybe we just need to prevent them from spreading to other parts of the body because as long as we prevent them from spreading, you can always cut them off. We've gone about focusing on trying to understand how they move. And it's been known for many years that cancer cells are very inefficient in their ability to spread through other parts of the body. The reason why you typically have years between when a cancer forms and when it actually spreads to other parts of the body is that the vast majority of cancer cells that leave a tumor and try to move through the blood to other parts of the body, they don't survive. And people don't know why they didn't survive. And a postdoc in my laboratory, Elena Piskanova, discovered a couple of years ago that when melanoma cells leave their primary tumor and they try to move to other places, they experience a high level of what's called oxidative stress. So people have probably heard out there of of things called reactive oxygen species. An example would be hydrogen peroxide. If you take hydrogen peroxide and you put it on anything like your skin, it will immediately turn white because of this very strong, rapid chemical reaction that oxidizes everything that it touches. It turns out that cells also make low levels of reactive oxygen species and that cancer cells, for reasons that aren't yet entirely clear, under some circumstances, make way too much of this stuff and that it limits the ability of melanoma cells to spread to other parts of the body and that the rare melanoma cells that survive the oxidative stress and actually grow at a distant site are the cells that have been able to undergo metabolic changes that either attenuate the production of oxidative stress or that they figure out how to cope with it. The the reason why people think antioxidants are good for you and that people eat pills with antioxidants in them is that antioxidants neutralize these reactive oxygen species like hydrogen peroxide inside cells. And of course, you know, when people get diagnosed with a serious cancer, they often become health conscious and they start taking dietary supplements. But our work suggests that the cancer cells benefit more from antioxidants than normal cells do. And that people, our prediction based on the studies in mice is that people who have a serious cancer that's at risk of spreading, if they take antioxidants, our work suggests that they might be increasing their risk of dying. So the exact opposite of the conventional wisdom. Yeah, and in fact, the idea that antioxidants are good for you has been so strong in people's minds that there have literally been scores of clinical trials done where uh, people with cancer and other kinds of diseases have been given dietary supplementation with antioxidants. And most of those trials you know, showed no effect. But multiple of the largest trials were in each case tens of thousands of of, uh, cancer patients were given antioxidants. Those trials had to be stopped early because the patients getting the antioxidants were dying faster than the patients who weren't getting the antioxidants. And so the clinical trials literature was actually completely consistent with what we were seeing in these mice and suggesting that 
one of the things that limits the progression of cancer is the fact that these cancer cells are totally stressed out, trying to figure out how to survive the oxidative stress that they're experiencing as a result of this, their metabolism that's in overdrive. Um, and, and that the last thing that we want to do is to, is to help them survive by taking antioxidants. That, you know, we think now in my laboratory that rather than treating cancer patients with antioxidants, we should be treating them with pro-oxidants that exacerbate the stress that the cancer cells experience or that compromises their ability to cope with that stress and therefore do a more effective job of killing the cancer cells. Even when you have the smoking gun substantiating your position, like you did with antioxidants and cancer cell replication, what's the role of courage <laughs> in presenting an opinion which is contrary to a popular, widely held belief? You know, we've been through this actually multiple times in my laboratory where there'll be a discovery that, you know, we feel like we've done it really carefully and we think that the answer is right and yet it's everybody's gut feeling or everybody's bias is in the opposite direction. And uh, sometimes, you know, there can be real hostility when you're first talking about it because it kind of messes up the picture for everybody else. Things might work the opposite way to what they think. And in this case, uh, I'll never forget, when we published this discovery about oxidative stress limiting cancer metastasis, uh, it was widely covered in the media. And there was one particular reporter who called me, and he said he wanted to write a feature article for a magazine about this. And he talked to me about it a little bit. And then he called me back later, and he said, you know, I just talked to six what he called leading oncologists. That's how he described them. I don't know who they were. But he said, you know, they, they told me that everybody knows that antioxidants are good for you and that they tell their patients to take antioxidants. And he said, well, what about um, Sean's work? And they said, well, you know, that's just some experiments done in mice. That's not about real people. And he said, well, what about the clinical trials that have been done that had to be stopped early because the patients getting the antioxidants were dying faster? And they said, you know, then they just started waving their hands. And most people come to their opinions not through a sober examination of data, but through gut feelings and past experiences and their own intrinsic biases and, you know, one of the things that you see is that once people believe something, sometimes there's no amount of data in the world that could convince them. But over time, what you see is when something is right, that other people come to the same conclusion and the conclusion becomes inescapable after some period of time. So the coaching you would give to your researchers working in the lab and under those circumstances would be what exactly? You have to have humility before the data. You have to really listen to what the data are telling you. And if the data are not consistent from the, with the way you think nature works, then there's something you don't really understand about how nature works. And it's really important to do really careful experiments and to try to disprove your own ideas. But when the data keep coming back and telling you something is true, then I think you have to be willing to say that it's true, even though people will criticize you. And, you know, when it turns out to be really, really true in the end, um, <laughs> then everyone thinks it was their idea. As you mentioned a moment ago, you place a very high value on integrating the research work of the lab 
and the clinical work helping real patients. In fact, that's the very foundation of the Institute. Now, it may seem like a silly question, but why this emphasis and has it been effective? Well, if we really want the discoveries that we make to be translated to the benefit of people, which I think is the ultimate goal, then we need to have physicians and scientists who are really working together and where there's um, an easy transition from the laboratory into the clinic. I think a lot of people recognize the importance of that, and yet there's still a sense that there's been a tendency historically for scientists and and physicians to work in separate silos and where the transition between those two worlds can be slow and inefficient. Uh, Now, there's a lot of institutions all over that recognize that and are trying to do things to increase the efficiency. And so for a a new research institute, the question becomes, what are you actually going to do that makes things different? And one of the things that we're doing, which is you know, honestly, it's an experiment, but it's, um, it seems to be working well so far, is to say that when we launch new programs in the Institute, some significant component of the program must be done in the ordinary course of healthcare. And by requiring some of the science to actually be done in a doctor's office, it means that scientists and physicians have to work together. And they have to work on problems that are relevant to the patients, and we have to learn from the patients. You know, I didn't really know what the implications of that would be when I said that was one of the things that we were going to try that would be different as an institute. But, you know, and it certainly constrains the way we're able to deploy our resources going forward, but it's also had some startlingly positive uh, effects. What would be an example? Well, one of my colleagues here in the institute, his name is Ralph DeBerardinas. He's one of the top cancer metabolism people in the world. And uh, he's also a card-carrying pediatric geneticist. <laughs> wow. Which means, he's, which means um, you know, when babies are born and they take a little spot of blood from the heel, right. what they're doing with that blood is that they're testing for what are called inborn errors of metabolism. So there are a certain number of kids, not very common, but it happens regularly, that are born with a genetic defect that affects a metabolic pathway. And these kids develop a chemical imbalance that can permanently damage intellectual development or that can um, kill them. There's some number of these inborn errors of metabolism that are known and that are immediately tested for at birth because if a child has an inborn error of metabolism, you have to figure out what it is and fix it by changing their diet right away before it does permanent damage. And so, so here's the fundamental problem, that there are many more ways for metabolism to go wrong than what we currently know about and can test for. So most kids with inborn errors of metabolism don't test positively for the known sources. They have some unknown error. And there are a very small number of people like Ralph, whose job it is when kids present later at the hospital with evidence of an inborn error of metabolism, he's the one who's got to figure out what's going wrong and what the chemical imbalance is to try to fix it as soon as possible. We've started a program here in Children's Research Institute and with the Department of Pediatrics at UT Southwestern and with Children's Medical Center here in Dallas where kids that present with an inborn error of metabolism that can't be diagnosed with existing clinical tests, we sequence them genetically to look for genetic defects that might cause a metabolic error. And other people are starting to do that as well. And um, the success rate is, you know, maybe around 30%. 
The, the real innovative part is that we're also, we have a way of looking at them metabolically and measuring the levels of a thousand different metabolites in their blood at the same time. So we get a picture of their genetic material as well as a picture of how all their metabolic pathways work. And by integrating that information, we're hoping that we'll be able to diagnose a, a larger proportion of these kids. And this program is is the way we think about how we should be doing our science. Because at one level, Ralph is diagnosing kids that couldn't be diagnosed before and coming up with new ideas for how to treat these kids. And there's been, there have been many families in Dallas that have benefited on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. But he's actually doing science in the ordinary course of healthcare because he's discovering new ways that human metabolism can go wrong. And we learn from these kids about how human metabolism works. And every time Ralph diagnoses a child with a new inborn error of metabolism, then the whole world finds out about it. And every other child in the world that has the same defect can suddenly become diagnosable. Are there other side benefits, such as cost-effectiveness? You know, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, ultimately, the cost-effectiveness in science is about whether you make important discoveries uh, that, that create new opportunities for treating disease. Mm -hmm. And um, we think that by learning not only from mice in the laboratory, but also from humans in the clinic, it's a more effective path. With your funding extending through 2026, I'm assuming you use that to frame your thinking about the big picture. Where do you think things will stand with the lab at the end of that major time window? You know, one of the exciting things in this business is you don't know where things are going to lead. And a lot of the ideas, a lot of the good ideas that people get about new ways of treating disease, they don't work out when you really test them in patients. Part of what we need to do is just get shots on goal, is to come up with new ideas and test those new ideas. And, you know, a lot of the ideas that we come up with won't work, but some of the time that they, they will. And when they do, they'll change the world for certain groups of patients. So we can't really predict in advance what things are actually going to work and what things won't. The hope is that there will be some subset of these ideas that change the world for people. What advice might you offer a high school student or a college freshman um, as they contemplate a career for which yours would be the model? I think people have to do something that they're passionate about because anything worth doing is really hard. The work that I do is really hard, but it's what I want to do. And um, so people have to think about what they're passionate enough about that they're willing to try to do it really well. Because in the end, no matter what people choose to do, they can make a difference in the world by doing it really, really well. It comes through in everything you say, Sean, that you have a real passion for what you do. It sounds like you're excited to get to work every day. Is that actually the case? Yeah, I really am. Yeah, I, I can't wait. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yeah. One of the hallmarks of this show is to provide our guests with the opportunity to ask themselves the one question they wish they had been asked but never have. Sean, what's that question for you and what's your answer? You know, I guess the question would be, what can we learn from science that's more generally relevant to how we run our societies? And it's just really critical that policies be evidence-based, that they be based on a sober understanding of the facts, because so much of what happens 
is based on people's ideology or intuition or biases. And when you create policy that's not based on a sound understanding of the facts, it can't help but fail. Too often there's not sufficient appreciation for the fact that our policy should be based on reality. It's, it's a comment for the times, isn't it, Sean? Yeah. Oh, yes. And, and here's my final, final question. And I've made an educated guess as to where your loyalties may lie. So Detroit Red Wings or Dallas Stars? <laughs> I guess I would have to go with Dallas Stars, having been a season ticket holder for a few years. Sean, in closing, I want to thank you for your time today. It's been a fascinating and inspiring look into your world. And I'm just so thankful to you for having made time for me today. If it's possible, I hope we might get together again in the future for an update. I would love to share that with our listeners, and I know they would be anxious to hear about it. Well, it's always fun talking to you, Terry. So um, thanks for your time, uh, and thanks for inviting me to join you. Thank you so much, Sean. That's it for this episode of the Work Not Work Show, and I would like to once again thank our very special guest, Dr. Sean Morrison. I would also like to thank Ms. Katie Reagan of UT Southwestern for her invaluable assistance in putting together this episode. If you like what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes. It really helps. We're also on Patreon, and we would be honored if you would consider becoming a patron of the show, which starts for as little as $1 per episode. Our website is worknotwork.show, and our podcast can be found on Apple's iTunes. Simply look for Work Not Work, no spaces, in the podcast section. We're on Twitter, at Work Not Work, and all of your favorite social media platforms. We also have a companion publication on media. The show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Terence C. Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Canada. All rights are reserved. Thank you, Michelle, my lovely wife, for your support and your infinite patience. Finally, thank you, our faithful audience, for supporting the Work Not Work show, the show about people who, like Sean, have turned their passion into their profession.